This is the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 29. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on-duty law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm joined by me. I uh, decided uh, this week, I got a lot of Q&As from uh, Daryl Bulky and uh, Hanny's episodes and uh, the CIT episode, and and I just kind of got behind on uh, answering the mail. So I decided to kind of do a mail call and, uh, you know, address some of those pressing questions and comments that you guys have been leaving uh, us, me, and the guest of the show. Can't believe we're 29 episodes in, and I appreciate everybody that likes, shares, and subscribes when we put these up on social media and, and subscribes to them on your uh, your preferred platform. So, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the mail. Sponsors for today... Mountain Man Medical. Mountain Man Medical is focused on two core principles. First, build med kits and trauma kits that consist of name brand proven and tested components. Second, make them the most affordable of any company on the market. Check out the full lineup of products and kits at mountainmanmedical.com. Remember, law enforcement officers, firearms instructors, and other professionals, you can save up to 15%. Mountainmanmedical.com. Also, EDC Belt Company, the manufacturer of the foundation belt. Foundation Concealed Carry Belt, the most comfortable, functional concealed carry belt on the market, hands down. Check them out at edcbeltco.com. CCW Safe, the newest sponsor of the podcast. It's a legal service membership for your concealed carriers and law enforcement officers, retired and active. They are the most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team. And the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is happy to offer you 10% off of your membership. Go to ccwsafe.com forward slash off-duty 10. 10% know those guys. And uh, actually, they just moved their offices like two blocks from me. So it's kind of nice. I can just, uh, you know, run over there and check things out. Maybe snag a t-shirt, something like that. But uh, Mike and Kyle, Stan, all the guys over there and gals now, great people. Great company to work with. Can't say enough good about CCW Safe. And uh, while you're at it, Google Stephen Maddox and you'll see why. That kind of sealed the deal for how legit that company is. So, all right. And finally, a reminder the Guardian Conference is right around the corner. It's September. I can't believe this is already, we're halfway through March. And uh, it seems like just the other day, uh, we were snowed in in October. So, Anyway, the Guardian Conference, I'll be teaching there. I'm going to talk more about it on our next episode where my guest will be one Riley Bowman from ConcealedCarry.com. He's coordinating the conference and uh, setting everything up and getting all the, the I's dotted and the T's crossed. So looking forward to talking to Riley. That'll be next week's episode, episode number 30. Nice even number guardianconference.com that's the link and always the links are in the show notes the description in the show notes so you can catch the links there 
Uh, you can look them up on the website, offdutyonduty.com. If you go to the show, they're in the links. If you go to any of the podcast platforms and scroll down to the comment section, you will find the show notes with all the links to the sponsors. All right. Uh, question that just came in from, uh, from a gentleman that has downloaded the, uh, podcast says, uh, the use of hand loaded ammunition for self-defense. Why or why not? Essentially, why or why not? Why would we not use it? Why would we use it? Now I will confess I have carried hand loaded ammunition in one particular aspect of my life. And that was hunting, right? I'm not saying a hunting scenario couldn't digress into a self-defense scenario, but for hunting, I usually went with the mindset of a, I was hunting with a caliber that I couldn't easily find on the market or B, I was looking for a specific performance. So that involved like gas checking and casting lead bullets and setting them to a certain velocity for a handgun, certain calibers and, and bullet weights that weren't available that uh, I've had really good luck with over the years. For example, I have a 230 grain, I'm sorry, a 245 grain 44 Magnum that I load in a 44 Magnum case downloaded to just between 44 special and 44 mag. It's like a really hot special, a really light Magnum. And that was kind of like elk hunting, deer hunting, etc. And that cartridge, I won't give you my load data because that's kind of super secret, right? But I worked that load up to be extremely accurate out of a single action Ruger 44 Magnum Blackhawk. Uh, with iron sights that I could shoot out to a hundred yards really confidently grouped really well, gas checked lead. Um, and it performed, it slugged a solid hole through whatever it hit. So the flip side of that self-defense manufactured self-defense ammo is designed to work within certain parameters and, I kind of recommend DOJ NIJ spec ammo, which typically a nine millimeter is going to be uh, 124, 147 bonded from most of your major manufacturers. And I recommend a factory load because if I go out and I end up in a self-defense shooting with the 245 grain cast lead uh, <laughs> flying slug and I don't know what the penetration is. I don't know what the performance of that is on a person, uh, on a vehicle, on soft armor, on windshield glass, on concrete. I've never tested that for that protocol. Okay. So all of these DOJ NIJ spec loads for self-defense or modern quality hollow point ammunition, they've run the gamut of that that test data, those test data sets, you can, I mean, you can Google them and uh, find a lot of uh, reliable information. So if you were in a self-defense scenario, you now have the backing of all of that data on the liability side. I would not want to go into a deposition saying, Hey, yeah, I carry this ammo because I hunt with it. And I know that it will punch a deer from, you know, uh, the chest to the hindquarters and, and it's just not a good plan, right? 
You want something that's going to expand, that's going to mitigate going completely through someone or, you know, an attacker and doing some type of other collateral damage. I would say not, uh, not a good idea to carry hand loaded ammunition. Now in a past life, um, you know, there were a lot of agencies that carried hand loaded ammunition. I had a, a dear friend of mine that when he started out in law enforcement in 1981, he was issued a 41 Magnum and he, there was no ammunition really available in mass supply. And he was working for an agency that paid him kind of peanuts and he couldn't afford to buy it. So to practice and to carry that ammo for duty ammo, he had to actually go make it. That was, uh, you know, early eighties and times were different. Times are different now. So I don't recommend carrying hand loaded ammo. Excuse me. Oh, all right. Moving on. And thank you, Morgan, for that question and giving me the opportunity to answer it. All right. The next one, my buddy, Phil Curtis from down in Texas says, tell me about the pocket revolver. So I kind of carry in a counterintuitive format. And what I mean by that is during the summertime, when I don't have a lot of external clothing jacket, uh, you know, it's, I'm kind of a board shorts, flip flops and t-shirt kind of guy, right? Well, not flip flops, but, but I I dress pretty casual, pretty t-shirt and jeans or t-shirt and cargo shorts. And I find it really easy to carry a full size handgun when I'm dressed that way because of the holster selection that I use. Typically I carry appendix and I carry either Beretta 92 or a full size P320 SIG. I think it's the X compact, the X carry frame on the full size top end. That's the one Riley knows all that knows all the SIG lingo. I, I just pretty much, those are the two handguns that I, I float with and I carry the 320 with a curve trigger and, uh, HDXR style sights on it. And I carry them both in an appendix holster uh, that's that's manufactured here in Oklahoma. And I find it really easy to conceal a full-size handgun during the summer. It's just not that big of a deal. And I also wear a foundation belt, so it's comfortable. Usually, I carry a spare mag on the hip or one in the pocket. And I, I've gotten bagged on about the one in the pocket, but... Uh, We'll get into why I carry a spare mag, some other, maybe that's a topic for another discussion, but, but the revolver in the pocket. So I have a 640 J frame, the internal hammer J frame, uh, that is pretty well bone stock. It does not have the side lock safety on it, but it is a modern revolver. They do make limited productions of those from time to time. And it's steel cylinder rated for 38 plus P. And I typically carry that with some form of either a a one, I think they're 125 grain golden saber or some type of wad cutter. Now the wad cutter, it's, that's, that's one of those things that if you're proficient with it, the ammunition becomes kind of less of an issue, but modern water, like the federal gold medal match and some of the Remington wad cutter ammo out of those guns is sufficiently accurate. It doesn't waste a lot of velocity coming out of that two inch barrel. 
So, and there are several companies out there that make kind of a, a snubby specific. It's gotten really big with the, uh, the compact semi-autos like the 365 SIG is making an ammunition that's kind of tuned for that gun. But what you'll find is a lot of those snubbies, if you listen to DB and I's last podcast, they just don't generate a lot of velocity out of that tiny barrel. And consequently, if you run them up too hot, they, they really suffer in accuracy you know, a good mild load, like middle of the road, heavier bullet seems to work fine. Uh, I have carried 148 wad cutters in them over the years, but I carry it in a, in a holster in my pocket. And I don't carry like a really rigid holster. It's a pretty soft holster that the thing just, it protects the trigger guard and stuff like that. And I'll carry it in a jacket pocket during the winter. The reason is during the winter, my hands are typically in my pockets. So that kind of negates the whole like defeat concealment, cover garment, defeat layers of clothing. Now I'm proficient at doing that. And I still carry either a full size gun or a 365 when I'm carrying that revolver. The revolver just tends to be, that's kind of the, where my hands likely going to be if something happens and, uh, to like retain it. If there was something that it wasn't going to go to lethal force, I carry jack or I wear jackets that have zipper pockets so I can zip that pocket up and pretty well secure that gun inside of the pocket. Some people might, oh, well, you shouldn't be, I get it, but that's just the way that I do it. So your mileage may vary. Um, I typically carry Smith and Wessons. I know I have some buddies that carry like uh, Colt detective specials and stuff that are modified and all that. I carry an off-the-shelf 640, and it's or 642. I can't remember which one. Yeah. Smith and Wesson's model numbers, man. There's like eight million of them, but but either way, it's it's the 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 humpback internal hammer, 38 plus P rated, no side lock. It's got the newer style uh, cylinder latch, cylinder release on it, and it's it's light enough. I can carry it. I carry a you know, a reload in the pocket or something like that. And then I carry my uh, semi-auto of some sort somewhere else on my body. So typically in the appendix position. So that's kind of, um, kind of my two cents on the, the jacket thing is it's just, it's really, it's a lot easier to get to than it is. Like I said, to defeat layer after layer after layer of, of, of clothing and, for those of you that uh, may have known me early in my law enforcement career, I carried a J frame on my ankle uh, and I got accused of wanting to be old school and all this. And I got to tell you some of the guns we were issued back then with some of the ammo combinations, I wasn't just real keen on it at the time. So having an extra gun on my person was really good. Now, I had been in some entanglements and it is an additional layer of caution that you got to take to carry a boot gun or an ankle gun because you get entangled with somebody and that thing comes off or there's other people present, you know, you, now you've got two guns to worry about if you're, if you're a on duty law enforcement officer, or even if you're a civilian. So Either way that, but I carried that on my boot for years. I, I swear that's probably why I still, I have like hip and lower back issues from you know, carrying a, <laughs> carrying an ankle weight for years, but, but it worked for the purposes that, that 
it served. And uh, me and my old district partner used to go to the range and practice out of our ankle rigs. So we would practice, you know, standing draws, seated draws, you know, <laughs> not prone, but uh, like supine draws, like maybe you got knocked down and you need to get to that gun. Uh, and we qualified with them typically out of the ankle rig, which was kind of, uh, kind of rare at that time. So food for thought, hope that, uh, answered those answered your questions, Phil question number three. And this one has come to me from like several sources and I will address it. And it is, why are you so fond of the double action first shot gun? Spencer Keepers and I, back a few episodes, we covered why we like double action guns. We talked about it quite a bit. And it seems to be something that that is recurring because there are kind of people that fall into one of three categories. They're either people that were in law enforcement or that were in the defensive carrying game back when there was you know, the 5906, the 3906, the uh, 39 Smiths, the uh, SIG 226, the Beretta 92, and the 1911. And 1911s prior to like, you know, in the mid-80s, unless you were willing to drop some coin to get one really dialed in, they were a bit questionable. And that's nothing against... 1911s i love them i i own several it's just at the time it it was a kind of a risky endeavor and a lot of people that carried them they had to have some type of service done to them to keep them running and the people that ran them were very proficient at them and then you had the double action guys the guys that grew that well their agency or maybe they weren't carry comfortable carrying cocked and locked with the 1911 so they carried uh a double action first shotgun and you know the sig 220 stuff like that so that's like school number one and then number two is the guys that grew up in the striker fired world and kind of in that transitional time a lot of military guys beretta m9 etc and competition shooting in the early 2000s got really dominated by double action first shot guns, um, especially in the IDPA circles. There were a lot of really good shooters that had harnessed the potential of the Beretta 92. And that was like Todd Lewis Green, Dave Harrington, Ernest Langdon. I watched a lot of these guys really run that gun to its peak of potential. And at the time I was shooting a 226 and a 92. I was kind of bounced back and forth between those two platforms. And I always found that I preferred the double action first shot gun. Now in that time, I also competed a lot with a 1911. So I was kind of like it wrought with ambiguity on what gun I was going to show up to a match with. But the one I always favored was a 92. So that was kind of like the, the group number two, I'll call it that came off the the heels of that and the striker fired guns had had started to really gain steam and then you have school of thought number three and that is the dudes that have grown and ladies that have grown up completely in the striker fired world and a lot of them they kind of look at double action guns as kind of like we did in the early 2000s 
at 1911s. It was kind of like, well, that's like the old guy platform, right? So they look at that platform and they go, eh, well, I don't know why anybody would learn two trigger pulls. And I don't understand the whole concept because let's face it. Today, you walk into a gun store, you're a brand new to the uh, defensive shooting world, and you're going to get steered toward one of the modern striker fired platforms. It's just the way it is. And that's completely fine. You know, your G19, the, the Walters, the XDs, the XDMs, the uh, Smith and Wesson M&Ps, guns like that have really dominated the market. And that's fine. Well, once these, this group starts to get into that real, like upper level of proficiency where they have a great, a grasp of the, of the concepts of, uh, how to run a gun effectively, then you'll see them venture back into the double action guns. And surprisingly in the last three, four five years, there's been another resurgence of double action first shot guns. And from the concealed carry standpoint, for me, I love to carry appendix. Uh, when I'm when I'm off work, I love carrying appendix. It's just it works for me. And there is like no better substitute I've found for safety in reholstering than to have your thumb on the back of the hammer. So that's like number one. Number two is in the era that I was coming up. Your striker-fired guns kind of lacked some in the accuracy department. They were close, but, you know, everybody's looking for an advantage. So the hammer-fired guns tended to be more accurate. And that could have been a whole host of factors. I'm not just poo-pooing the polymer guns of that era, but the striker guns... And the ammo combinations of the day, it they just they left a little bit to the to be like desired in the accuracy department. The other thing is recoil management. An, an alloy frame, nine millimeter with a steel slide, it just shoots easier. Everybody I know, like smaller statured females that have shot the Beretta or the SIG, the first thing they remark is, is like, oh, well, that doesn't kick as hard as, and I'm, you know, to use the parlance of that, that language, but it doesn't kick as hard as the Beretta or the SIG. And the reason being is, you you know, you've got a little more weight in the hand to soak up some of that recoil. Uh, I love shooting the Glock 19. I, I, I own an a LAV Glock 19. I love it. In an extended range session, it can really start to sting your hands a little bit until you get conditioned to it. So that's my take on that. And now we have uh, like the PX4s, you know, with rotating barrels and all that. And those guns have a very moderate recoil and a polymer hammer-fired gun. Same with your, you know, the HK, uh, what is that, the P30 and, and things like that. So... It's just a preference thing. And I had this conversation. If you listen back to uh, M&S Range Therapy with, with Michael Burgess, he and I have shot together for 20 years. And after you've obtained a certain level of proficiency, the gun becomes not so much what's going to make me perform better as much as it is what do I prefer to shoot. Now, the exception to that, 
it's kind of like the open USPSA stuff, the open division. It's like, well, yeah, you're looking for any minuscule, tiny bit of performance increase you can get running a comp with an optic and, and things like that. So I get that side of it. But for a defensive handgun, it just boils down to what you prefer. Is it a 1911? Is it a, you know, a, a VP9? What? any of the bevy of quality polymer and double action hammer fired guns that are out there. It just becomes a a matter of what do you prefer over another gun? So, so don't, don't read into it too hard. Find something you like and run it. But, But I do recommend for people starting, I, I really encourage them to simplify things with a, striker fired pistol i and i teach double action first shot guns i i teach striker fired guns the whole gamut but uh for somebody that's a brand new shooter uh especially if you grew up in the nintendo generation it's it's just a lot more simple there's a lot less manual of arms involved in that but as you progress through that venture out a little bit once you get the uh the mechanics down all right the final question was, it was kind of twofold and the user was anonymous or the listener was anonymous and said, how come you don't talk carbines? Do you shoot a carbine? Do you teach carbine classes? And why do you not talk about it on the podcast? And to be very honest with you, I do. I do teach. I teach cops how to shoot carbines. Uh, I own a couple. I run them. Uh, I shoot three gun on occasion when I, uh, when I find the time and have the, uh, adequate amount of time to prepare because I don't, I don't like to place last in anything that makes it hurts my feelings. So there now, you know, but I am competent with one, but this show is primarily based on cop concealed carrier stuff and cops, your, your go-to gun for convenience is the handgun and for concealed carriers most states don't let you concealed carry a rifle so it's kind of a moot point we might do a uh, a one-off episode just on carbine chat and to be honest with you like i don't teach civilian carbine classes and the reason being is they are a lot more logistically heavy than say your average civilian course or not your average handgun course. Uh, you know, you're talking about zeroing a rifle. Does everybody have the same, you know, barrel length? Does everybody have the same grain of ammo? If they don't, you have to be prepared for all of these things. And all of these things can affect the overall outcome of a class. You know, do you run a single point sling or a two point sling? Do you have a flashlight, a free float tube? All these things kind of compound and add up to it's more time investment than I have right now. So maybe someday when I'm retired from police work, I'll, I'll spread the good word of, of, uh, carbine training. But for now I stick with handguns. That's, that's kind of uh, my forte. The other the other thing is I'm, I'm a pretty firm believer that if you can shoot a handgun well, everything else kind of falls in line. It's, it's, it's not as big of a venture outside of uh, your comfort zone. Now, there, of course, are exceptions to that. If you've ever, <laughs> if 
you've ever run a submachine gun, it can be a little more complex than maybe a handgun, but all in all, not, uh, not a, a huge departure. So, uh, shot. And then the same thing was you haven't talked shotguns much. Now DB and I did address some things with like birdshot in the last episode. And I'll tell you, shotguns are probably one of my favorite guns of all time. And I am a strong, strong proponent of the the more modern semi-autos. I love pump guns. I absolutely love them. I think they're they're a great tool. Uh, I have pretty much carried a semi-auto for the bulk of my career. I, I carried a Benelli Super 90 for the bulk of my career. And I just haven't... I haven't played with anything else because I honestly haven't needed to. I would encourage you if you are looking for a shotgun, that new uh, Langdon Tactical 1301's got my attention. And if you look at the control layout on it, it's very similar to Benelli. But uh, but great guns, and everybody I've talked to that's had one is great. The 870, unfortunately, right now is not in production. I have not shot the Mossberg 590. So that's kind of your... Your big four, the 1301, the Benelli on the auto side. And then on the uh, the pump side, you got the Mossberg 500, 590 and the, the Remington 870. And uh, we'll see where that goes. But uh, an older 870, I can remember a time when I could pick them up at gun shows for like 250 bucks for an all-steel receiver 870. And with a couple of tools and a little bit of know-how, they can you can make just about any one of them run wide open and uh, great, reliable piece of kit. Uh, there is some learning curve to shotgun. And again, right now it's one of those logistical issues for me. So uh, anonymous, uh, I appreciate your question about why uh, we don't talk a whole lot about shotguns and rifles, but uh, we will do some, we will do some, uh, Oh, some, some deep dives on those in, in the near future. And my brother Daryl and my brother Hanny are both very, very proficient shotgun instructors. I also got uh, uh, an acquaintance buddy out there in Virginia named Tim Chandler that teaches. Uh, he seems to really specialize in shotguns, and I think it kind of takes a special personality to do that. And I commend people that do. Uh, it's just, it's not my jam right now, so we'll see. Maybe down the road uh, we'll do that. So tune in next week. Riley Bowman's going to be with me. We're going to be talking all about the ins and outs of the Guardian Conference coming up in September in Oklahoma City. Uh, get your tickets now at theguardianconference.com. Reminder, if you haven't, check out our sponsor, CCW Safe, EDC Belt Co., Mountain Man Medical, and of course, the Guardian Conference, which is right around the corner. Excuse me, I had to go offline and cough. All right. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC.
Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.